Hello, armchair detectives. Once again, before I get started, I just want to remind you that there are spaces in the Patreon that are open, and it's not only murder and missing persons, it's also self-care, guidance, and psychic energy updates about the month ahead, as well as interviews with victims in the afterlife and killers who are on the other side. If you're listening to this on Monday on the date of release, or even on Tuesday, possibly Wednesday morning, the 19th of May, then there is still time to get in on the monthly interview with the chosen victim and or perpetrator for that month. And if you choose to do so, you may still have time to vote on just who it is that we'll be connecting with. You can even reserve your own private monthly reading. And I want to remind you as well that if you leave a review on iTunes, which really helps this podcast get into the ears of more listeners, I would so appreciate that. And in return, you'll be entered to win a free 30-minute reading even though, yes, it did say on a previous episode 15, I had decided that 30 minutes felt like enough time to chat with you guys, whereas 15 did not. So go ahead, leave that review, and that will be your entry for a free 30-minute reading. And if you're interested in being a part of these interviews on Patreon, go ahead and get in on those as well. Okay, now to the real content. Imagine having your whole life ahead of you, 22, young, beautiful, hardworking, and hitting the ground running in your dream career, only to have it ripped away from you with no answers as to what really happened. Jennifer Servo was a news anchor for KRBC-TV in Abilene, Texas, and at the start of her career, eager to climb the ladder and to put in the work to get to the top. She idolized Katie Couric and really didn't think that she could stop at anything before having that same career. Having recently graduated college, she moved to Texas from Columbia Falls, Montana, only two months prior to take this job. She was hired out of dozens and dozens and dozens of applicants. And if you watch the interview that I will post, obviously in the show notes as always, of her, I believe it was a Dateline or a still missing episode on ID. They talked about how many applicants they had and how her energy was just so perfect for the job that they knew they had to have her. She was incredibly ambitious and she wasn't going to let anything get in the way of being a household name with the news, which is why it was no surprise that when she had found that the supposed love of her life, Rep Sepulveda, was hiding a huge secret when he moved to Texas with her, she cut ties with him. His secret? He had a child and a fiancé back in Montana. See, Jennifer and Ralph had been dating a very short time. I believe I had read somewhere it was only about two months, but don't quote me on that. Regardless, way too short to be moving in with each other, especially when you're moving states and states away. To which evidently her family had expressed their concerns, but you know, when you're young and beautiful and your whole life is ahead of you, you don't really think about the bad things that might be lurking around you even though your older, wiser parents might. This plug is just in case my mother listens to my episode. (laughs) So Ralph was actually 12 years older than Jennifer. And at 34 years old and an active duty, excuse me, an active duty army, Jennifer had met him when she joined the army reserves, which she had done to help pay for college. Ralph didn't go far though. He stayed in Texas after they broke up and stayed fairly close to where he had been living with her when they shared an apartment. Kind of weird, right? You have a whole life established in Montana. Your girlfriend breaks up with you. You would think you'd go back to your fiance. 
Details were never released about exactly how she found out about the fiancé, but I'm willing to bet that it was not through him. So despite this breakup, Jennifer was determined to keep going forward with her life. She was in a new place and making new friends, and why would she let this get her down, right? So one of her friends in particular, Brian Travers, the weatherman for KRBC-TV, had taken an interest in Jennifer. And she had confessed to a close friend of hers that she had in fact made out with Brian, but was only interested in being friends with him. She even felt badly about the makeout session because it seemed as if he were definitely interested in more than friendship and she didn't want to lead him on. So after having a conversation about that, she actually remained friends with Brian. And that last evening that she was seen alive, she was grocery shopping with him and went back to his place with him to help him unload the groceries before heading back to her own apartment. Now, I want to say, because we're going to get to this where Brian's a suspect and yada, yada, yada. But if you're going to kill her, wouldn't you do it when she's already, I don't know, maybe at your apartment or you're right by the car or I don't, my little murder mind is going and just thinking like, why would I later go to her place and kill her if I had her right there with me? Anyway, neither here nor there. She had felt bad about making out with him. She didn't want to lead him on and she was out grocery shopping with him the night that she was murdered. According to Brian, while they were driving back to his place to unload those groceries that evening, she mentioned that she felt as if someone were following them. Now, it's also not something I could find where they talked about. Was it him driving? Was it her driving? When I have these visuals, I'm seeing her driving and him kind of talking about whatever he's talking about with her, her saying like, I think I'm being followed. Are we being followed? And him being like, no, that's ridiculous and kind of passes it off, right? So she thinks that someone's making all the same turns they're making. Brian kind of didn't think anything of it at the time. And then when Jennifer was found dead in her apartment on September 18th, 2002, Brian didn't even bring up to the police that she had mentioned that night that she felt as if she were being followed. He didn't bring it up for nearly a week, actually, which does look suspicious, I will admit. But Jennifer had been off for work off of work for a few days and was only found on the 18th because her boss was trying to reach her to come in and help out as they were shorthanded that day. It was incredibly unlike her to not answer her phone and even more unlikely for her to not return a phone call. Her mom was even trying to get in touch with her without success and before the police could arrive to perform a well check on Jennifer as her boss had requested, she was found by an apartment complex employee doing the well check for them. Not for the police, but on for who was calling, trying to get her checked on. So the scene left little to question as to whether it was accidental or a murder. When I tapped into her name in this case prior to doing any research, what I first saw was a flash of army boots or possibly work boots, light brown tan combat boot style. And I want to say that that doesn't mean that the person was wearing those, but it is something that I would associate with them. The next thing that I saw was her blonde hair matted down to the side of a woman's head and blood dried to and around her ear as well as to the side of her head. I also saw her eyes as someone tried to strangle her as she grabbed at their wrists and their forearms trying to get their hands off of her. And I can see his hands and they look larger and you can see like the veins and the knuckles like popping as he's doing what he's doing to her. I also see the side of his face very clearly, and these types of images are definitely stronger than the visuals that I normally get, and I can without a doubt tell you who I think did it, allegedly, 
of course, for entertainment purposes only. Jennifer was also sexually assaulted, and it appears that her attack began in the bedroom and ended in the bathroom, where she was dragged to. And what I see when I connect to this is exactly as follows. First, I saw the boots, and then the hair matted down with blood. However, when I stepped back and asked to see more of what happened, which doesn't always work, but it most certainly showed me more than I could have hoped for this time, I then see the night as it unfolded. I see her walking up to her apartment and unlocking the door, getting inside and settling in with maybe just a few bags. I see her still shaken by the sense that someone was following her, despite Brian shrugging it off, but she tries to shrug it off much in the same way that he had. If he didn't think it was serious, then maybe she was being paranoid. She, after all, was very far from home and living in a place where she really didn't know anyone all too well. She had only been there for two months. The one person she did know, she didn't know anything about. She had a fiance and a kid back in Montana. So I don't think she was, I don't think she was being paranoid though. So she unpacks a few things and she settles in for the night. She calls her ex-boyfriend who still lives in Montana, Dave Warren, not a suspect because he was still in Montana, and she chats with him for a bit, which wasn't unusual for her. And according to police, Dave never mentions that Jennifer brought up anything about being followed. Now, some find this peculiar because she had said it to Brian. Why wouldn't she bring it up to Dave if she were so concerned? But like I said, I believe when Brian brushed it off, she was kind of convincing herself that she was being silly as well, that everything was fine, which is why she wouldn't have brought it up to Dave. However, I really feel her intuition was accurate. I see her hanging up with, excuse me, I see her hanging up with Dave and I see a knock at the door and I can hear it on the other side. It's like a tap, 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 Jen, Jennifer, Jen, this is what I hear, Jen, come on. I see her looking to see who it is and recognizing Ralph's voice and face and she sighs heavily. You can see her shoulders like drop and she opens the door kind of begrudgingly because it's late. She doesn't want to make a scene. So she lets him in. She doesn't want him to make a scene. He wants to talk about how it wasn't working with his fiance and she had to trust him. Why would he have that? He would have told her about it and yada, 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 but it wasn't a big deal. And all this bull crap about whatever he needed to say to get her back, even though he would mean nothing of it. So she goes on about her business, like tidying up her apartment and taking care of whatever she can because she can't really be bothered with this. And I feel like she's kind of just letting him have his 15 minutes of blowing off steam before she asks him to leave. I can see her moving around the apartment and passively arguing with him, but essentially sticking to her decision that it just isn't going to work with him because she just can't trust him. So I see him at this point, she's in her bedroom and I see him grab her by her wrist and try to get her to listen. And he's like, kind of like begging her, like, just like be with him and she'll see that she loves him and she'll know that like, this is meant to be. And how can she just walk away from this? There's so much here. And he tries to get her to be intimate with him and she pulls away. And I can hear him saying again, like, Jen, Jennifer, please come on and getting more frustrated with her because his tantrum isn't working the way that he thought it would, the way that it usually does, like say maybe with his fiance. So when he met her, She seemed like a naive and pretty young girl who felt perfect for him to manipulate and work his narcissistic drama on. But when he didn't realize, he didn't realize that she was someone who wouldn't take his shit. So when she resists him, I see him pick something up off of her dresser and smash her in the head, kind of like behind her ear toward the back of her head. 
and I can't tell what the object is, but I feel as if it had either, it was either on her dresser or he set it down there while arguing and picked it back up. So I believe she was kind of stunned, so to speak, and tried to climb away from him toward the bathroom. And she's on the floor at this point, which I feel was on the way toward the exit or toward a phone, maybe both. But he dragged her kind of into the bathroom out of the hallway where I believe he essentially assaulted her there and strangled her in the process of her assault. The thing is with this case is that detectives know who her killer is. They can't make an arrest because they don't have sufficient DNA evidence. This was contaminated by her cat's hair and DNA mixing in with her ears and her attackers. And if they made an arrest, they would risk not being able to go to trial or losing the case altogether. The cat isn't the only problem, though. Ralph's DNA would have already been in the apartment regardless because just two weeks ago, he was still living there with her. And in that time that he wasn't living with her anymore, it said that he was leaving her alone, but I feel like he was also stewing and and just thinking about talking to her again and being with her and eventually would wind up over at her apartment in the middle of the night to ask for exactly that. So even if I thought for a second that it was Travers, his DNA was there as well, but he had been hanging out with her there earlier, I believe earlier in the week. And it was also stated he brought that information to the police immediately. He was very cooperative with them and he mourned with her family and was blown to pieces when he learned of her murder. Ralph, on the other hand, didn't even ask how she had died or what had happened. Now, some say Travers must be guilty because his parents got a lawyer for him as soon as he was questioned. I think that was smart, not really suspicious at all. It sounds like something you would do when you're well-educated or you have any common sense whatsoever to get a lawyer because this case was clearly going to blow up in the media. A young, pretty news reporter brutally slain in her apartment. It would have been stupid to not have lawyered up when questioned. And what's Ralph's alibi? He was at his apartment alone when Jennifer was murdered and no way of verifying this with anyone. So Travers was also with Jennifer the night of her murder and police have not been able to rule him out either. But here, I almost feel as if they publicly keep him listed as a suspect so that they can keep Ralph from thinking that he's the only suspect that they have. Though I feel he's truly the only one that they're focused on. So do I feel that Ralph will be caught or whoever it was that ultimately killed her? honestly don't think that they will ever pin her murder on one person. And it feels largely because of contaminated evidence and lack of eyewitnesses. And I hope that I'm wrong and that Jennifer's friends and family get the closure that they so need, that Brian can finally 100% clear his name and that Ralph gets the punishment that he so deserves. That would make my soul scream with joy. However, for now, it's up to us, the armchair detectives and true crime obsessed to keep her name in the media so that we get her story and the stories of others into the right ears. Because you never know who could hear something that could jog their memory and have the information that police need. And with that, I'll catch you next time, my friends. Stay safe.